Hello, everyone. I'm Olympia. Thank you for being here with me in this wonderful place called Lights Out Library. And I have a great story to tell you. For tonight's story, we're going to travel far back into the past, to the frontiers of legend and history, to explore one of the most famous mythical tales ever told, the story of the Trojan War. Or was it mythical? We'll find out what archaeology can tell us about this, too. But let's start immediately with our first story of the night. Once upon a time, so long ago that men almost lost memory of these events, the king of gods, Zeus, became annoyed at the sheer number of humans and half-gods populating the earth. Since he had overthrown his father, Cronus, and began to rule the earth along with other Olympian gods, humans had multiplied. Among them, too, many heroes and demigods born from the relationships between gods and humans. Zeus himself was not the last to get involved with humans. He was unfaithful to his wife, Hera, and from his relationships with many gods, many children were born. Even more worrisome to him, Zeus learned from a prophecy foretelling that he would be overthrown by one of his own sons, like he had overthrown Cronus, and like Cronus had overthrown his own father, Uranus, at the dawn of time. The threat was serious, and yet another prophecy stated that the son he bore with Thetis, a young and beautiful sea nymph with whom Zeus had fallen in love, would become even greater than Zeus himself. In order to do away with all these problems, Zeus came up with a plan. First, he ordered Thetis to marry the elderly king, Peleus. He then made sure that all the gods were invited to the wedding. When all the gods arrived bearing gifts, Zeus ordered Hermes, the messenger of the gods, to stop Eris, the goddess of discord, at the door. Eris was a minor deity but one who had the power of creating strife, of sowing the seeds of discord between gods or between men. Eris threw a gift of her own from the door, just as Zeus expected. The gift was a golden apple upon which was inscribed the words, To the fairest. This apple became the most desired prize at the assembly, and three goddesses at the gathering, Athena, Hera, and Aphrodite, immediately tried to claim this gift as their own and argued fiercely over the apple, 
just as Zeus had anticipated. The three goddesses could not come to an agreement, and none of the other gods present dared to offer an opinion in favor of one of them, for fear of antagonizing the other two. Zeus just smiled under his beard, seeing that the first part of his plan was working as expected. Zeus had manipulated the three goddesses into engaging in a bitter feud. Eventually, Zeus ordered Hermes to lead the three goddesses to Paris, the prince of Troy, and rule that Paris would decide to whom the golden apple should belong. Troy was the most powerful and wealthiest of cities of all cities, and it was protected by walls so high and so strong that no army could ever dream of defeating it. Paris was a prince of Troy, but didn't know it. He was raised as a shepherd and kept far away from the city because of a prophecy stating that Paris would be the downfall of Troy. As an anonymous shepherd, there was no threat he could fulfill the prophecy and threaten the city. Hermes led the goddess to Paris, and the three goddesses bathed nude in a spring and appeared to him naked in their perfection in order to win Paris's approval and gain the apple. Paris was unable to decide between them, and the goddesses eventually resorted to bribes. Athena, as the goddess of military glory and knowledge, offered Paris bravery, wisdom, and the ability of the greatest warriors. She thought there was no way Paris could refuse her offer. He was all about power and influence. She offered Paris control of Asia, and more power than any human king had ever possessed. Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty, also had weapons, and she knew the herd of young men. She offered Paris the love of the most beautiful woman in the world, Helen of Sparta. Helen was married Menelaus, the king of Sparta, and her legendary beauty was famous all across the known world. Paris couldn't resist such a tempting offer and awarded the apple to Aphrodite, much to the ire of Athena and Hera. Paris couldn't have known so, but his choice accomplished Zeus's plan to bring war to the world. And as the prophecy had said, he would be the downfall of Troy, and many warriors and heroes would die because of the folly of men and gods alike. But before we continue with our story, allow me to welcome you to tonight's episode. I hope you've already made yourself comfortable, and if not... Give yourself a moment to get settled 
and to let all that tension in your body drain. Let today's concerns fade into the background as you listen to the sound of my voice. Tonight, we're going to discover the Iliad, the story of the war by Greek author Homer, and we will also explore the reality of Troy. I hope you'll enjoy our exploration tonight. Is the Trojan War fact or fiction? Because even though Homer's story is a part of Greek mythology. These myths are not baseless. Troy really did exist. Its ruins were discovered in the 19th century, after scholars believed for centuries that it was purely mythical. The ruins held a wealth of artifacts and information about Greek antiquity that led to further discoveries and hypotheses about early Greek civilization. We will discuss all of this tonight. And because the story of Troy is one of the greatest stories ever told, there will also be a lot of storytelling. I will soon publish more Greek mythology stories, like the labors of Heracles and the Odyssey. If you wish to, you may close your eyes and only focus on the sound of my voice as we embark on this adventure together. But before we begin, assume a comfortable position, take a long, deep, relaxing breath. When you exhale, release the tension in your shoulders and allow the sound of my voice guide you through this journey. And now let's return to mythical times. So Paris had granted Aphrodite the golden apple, and his prize would be the love of the most beautiful woman in the world, Helen of Sparta. Her beauty was of divine origins. Her father was Zeus himself, and her mother was Leda a princess who had also become a Spartan queen. Zeus had a talent for seducing mortal women through trickery. To seduce Leda, he had presented himself to her as a swan, and, unafraid of the bird enchanted by its elegance, the princess had let Zeus have his way with her. From this relationship was born Helen, raised by the king of Sparta as his daughter, despite her parentage by Zeus. Helen was a charming child, but as the years went by and she became a woman, and her beauty grew in fame all around Greece. She soon had scores of suitors willing to do anything for her hand in marriage, he was unwilling to choose one for fear the others would retaliate violently. Among the suitors was Odysseus from the island of Ithaca, one of the various kingdoms of Greece. 
Odysseus may not have been the strongest or the bravest of all suitors, but he was the most astute. And besides Helen, he had also set his eyes on another Spartan woman, Penelope. So Odysseus came up with a plan. In exchange for the king's support of his pursuit of Penelope, Odysseus would solve the dilemma of Helen's marriage, get Helen married without the retaliation of all other suitors if they wanted to be chosen. Potential suitors would have to swear an oath to defend a marriage of Helen regardless of whom the king would choose. In this way, none of them would be able to deny the marriage and retaliate once Helen's husband was announced. All the suitors swore to the oath to stay in the race for Helen's hand, and the king could now make his choice. As promised, the king supported Odysseus in his pursuit of Penelope and could take her back to Ithaca. The king of Spartan chose Menelaus to marry his daughter, a man of great wealth and power. Melanaeus had promised Aphrodite that he would sacrifice one hundred oxen if he won Helen's hand, and had sent his brother Agamemnon to petition the king on his behalf. His wealth and power made him a good political choice for the king. However, Menelaus forgot about the promise he had made to Aphrodite, and the goddess became irritated when he failed to sacrifice one hundred oxen. Helen had two brothers and one sister, Castor, Pollux, and Clytemestra. One of the brothers should have rightfully become the king of Sparta, but both became gods instead. So the throne instead went to Helen's husband, Menelaus. This is how Menelaus became the new king of Sparta, after her father's death. Clytemnestra, Helen's sister, married Agamemnon, Menelaus's brother, and he became the king of Mycenae, another Greek kingdom. It seems all was well. The two brothers marrying the two sisters worked out well and resolved the issues of succession. Melanaeus was delighted with his new beautiful wife, but they ignored Zeus's plan. The feud between the three goddesses and the judgment of Paris which led to Helen being promised to Paris by Aphrodite. By promising Helen to Paris, Aphrodite not only had won the contest for the golden apple, she was able to take revenge on Melanaeus for forgetting to fulfill his promise to sacrifice one hundred oxen in her honor. All of these events unfolded in Sparta, Paris returned to Troy, no longer a humble sheep herder, but as an acknowledged prince. 
It was now time for him to claim his prize, the love of Helen of Sparta. Troy was not part of the Greek world, the Greeks, or Archaeans, these are synonyms, lived in and around the Peloponnese Peninsula, on islands on either side of it, in the Ionian and Aegean seas. Troy was a foreign city and kingdom in the east coast of Anatolia. Under the guise of a diplomatic mission, Paris traveled to Sparta, while King Menelaus was away. He had gone to Crete. Aphrodite was on standby, ready to deliver Helen to Paris. Just before Paris entered the palace in Sparta, she instructed her son, Eros, the little-winged god of desire, to shoot an arrow at Helen. The arrows of Eros made people fall immediately in love with the next person they saw and made them physically attracted in a way that could not be suppressed. As soon as Helen saw Paris, she fell in love with him. Taking advantage of the king's absence, the two lovers sailed to Troy. Zeus and the other gods watched these events unfold from their perch on Mount Olympus. And the king of gods was satisfied how the seeds of discord he had manipulated arrows into sowing were now beginning to flourish. One of the most powerful Achaean kings, the king of Sparta, Menelaus, had been humiliated by a foreigner, taking his wife in his absence, and with her consent no less. Add to that fact that all of Helen's suitors had been sworn by Odysseus to defend her marriage to Menelaus, following Odysseus' trick to make it accepted. And the former suitors were bound all to participate in an inevitable war between the Achaeans and the Trojans to return Helen to Melanaeus and restore his honor. In a desperate attempt to avoid a war, Menelaus traveled to Troy with his closest ally, Odysseus. The two attempted to recover Helen via diplomatic means but failed, and war was soon to begin. There are still many events and characters yet to intervene, but let's pause for a moment and take a look at the historical basis of all of this. The primary source of the story of the Trojan War is the Iliad, as I mentioned before. The ancient Greek poem by Homer, together with the Odyssey, also attributed to Homer, these two poems are the central works of ancient Greek literature. There is no doubt that these texts are ancient. They are dated to around 8th century BC, when their oldest known written form appeared. 
but we don't know for certain whether Homer existed or whether he is a legendary figure. Some scholars believed he was a genius poet and author, the first ever in the Western history to attach his name to literary works. Other scholars favor the theory that the Odyssey and the Iliad are the result of storytelling, rewriting, reworking by various contributors and collaborators. In that case, Homer would just be a legendary figure created to embody this tradition of poems written in epic or Homeric Greek, which was a literary language in the 18th century BC. The ancient Greek language was far from unified, like in Chinese or Arabic. There was a literary form of the language used for writing that was different from the way people spoke in everyday life. In Western countries, in modern times, this distinction between written and spoken language has diminished considerably. We still don't write exactly as we speak. In most cases, when we do, the writing sounds very informal. But there is no longer a major distinction between spoken vernacular and written form that existed centuries ago. In other language, there is still a big distinction between the two forms. Two registers, like, for example, in Arabic before. There are many Arabic-speaking countries, but people actually learn distinct varieties or registers of the language when they grow up. One is the Arabic dialect spoken in the country in everyday life. And nowadays, someone from Morocco or Algeria would have a hard time communicating with another Arabic speaker from the Persian Gulf and their respective dialects. There is also a more formal register called Modern Standard Arabic, which directly comes from the Classical Arabic. And this one is identical all across the Arabic-speaking world. It is used as the official language and in written communications. It is also the registered and it is taught in schools and used for every formal situation. The mastering of standard Arabic is an indicator of how educated people are but the vast majority of Arabic speakers can navigate to some extent between the everyday informal dialect and the literary form of Arabic. It has now been strongly attenuated, but English had the same kind of distinction between an elevated literary language and a colloquial form that was spoken every day. In the 11th century, about a thousand years ago, there was an old form of English that served as the official and literary language, but it was displaced by Latin and the old French after the Norman conquest of England. This didn't make the spoken English disappear, and 
England had completely different languages coexisting at the same time, depending on whether it was spoken or written, and on the level of formality, standardized literary English emerged over the following centuries replacing Latin, and it became dominant by the end of the Middle Ages. But as it developed in the Middle Ages and into the Renaissance, it absorbed a lot of terms from classical languages, from Latin, from Greek, from French. And though this process, many words, many terms with Latin roots, made their way into common English and have remained a part of it, this is why English speakers can recognize many words in French, Italian, or Spanish text. These Latin-based terms arrived by literary English, and then over the past two or three centuries, all Western countries have gone through a process of merging of the two registers. Something of this remains. We don't exactly write as we speak, but for several centuries already, Western languages have lost these distinctions between the everyday and the literary registers. So this was a long digression. So let's return to Homer. I was telling you that the Iliad and the Odyssey were written in the literary form of ancient Greece, and that Homer may or may not be a single author. Ancient Greeks believed that the Iliad exaggerated events for the sake of poetry and storytelling, there is no question that the story itself had its roots in history. They didn't question the veracity of the Trojan War and believed it had happened several centuries before the time of classical Greece, around 1200 BC. But did they also believe the myth of the gods intervening in human affairs and that heroes walked the earth? It's hard to know for sure, but classical writings seem to indicate that the population actually believed these events to also be true. Even though some were unsure of all of the details and which of them had been exaggerated by storytellers, the educated elite was more split. Some believed there was at least partial truth in the tales, whereas others rejected mythology as superstition or an equivalent to fairy tales. Still, all across Greece, mythology was respected as something unifying, and it was culture. There was no strict delineation between mythology, theater, and literature. A lot of activities and traditions in ancient Greece were deeply rooted in religion and mythology. From the legitimacy of city-states to the economic activities of temples to a theater or the Olympic Games, it wasn't in anyone's interest to attack these myths. And so they were passed from generation to generation with new artists adding new anecdotes so that the myths 
never stopped evolving. But the core of Greek mythology that was present in classic Greece probably began to emerge a thousand years before, around the 18th century B.C. It was passed on orally for centuries until it began to be put in writing, as far as we know, around the 8th century B.C., the time of the Iliad and the Odyssey. The importance of this body of stories cannot be underestimated, and maybe you've noticed that they often sound familiar, even when we don't know of them. This is because these myths are the basis for a large part of Western storytelling traditions. These stories have been rewritten and retold countless times. They keep being told nowadays with different characters and different settings. For example, think back to the story I told you in the beginning. You may recognize the storyline of Sleeping Beauty, when the goddess Iris is banned from a wedding and taking her revenge with a curse. This is exactly the bad fairy Maleficent, cursing the princess because she was not invited. As in the storyline of Sleeping Beauty. From Seuss's multiple affairs, the attempts of revenge by Hera against Heracles, the river race between gods and goddesses, the initiation journeys of heroes to misunderstandings, leaving to dramatic consequences, the cautionary tales, these devices still form the foundation of the books, movies, and TV shows we read it in novels and comic books. Of course, a lot of these elements are universal and found in many countries around the world. But when it comes to Western storytelling tradition, and the Middle Eastern as well, they were put in writing around the time of ancient Greece, primarily in mythology and in stories such as the Trojan War. So let's return to our story. Troy had refused to return Helen to Melanaeus, and war was now unavoidable. All the Greeks, all the Achaean kingdom, were oath-bound to defend the marriage of Helen and the king of Sparta. Melanaeus asked his brother, Agamemnon, the king of Mycenae, to uphold his oath, Agamemnon agreed and sent emissaries to all the Achaean kingdoms, asking them to also honor their oath. No Greek warrior or hero could ignore the call. Among them was Ajax, a great-grandson of Zeus and a famous warrior. He was a colossus, known to be fearless in combat. Another hero the Greeks counted was Achilles, and Achilles was no stranger to the story because he was the son of Thetis, the nymph who had been married 
to an elderly king, which we mentioned at the beginning of our story. The same wedding which had Eros so discord among the goddesses with the golden apple. Achilles had been the subject of prophecies even before the war began, one of which said that he would die of old age after an uneventful life, but full and happy, or that he would die young on the battlefield, after which he would gain immortality through poetry. Even when he was a child, another prophecy declared that Troy could never fall without Achilles' support. This last prophecy was told by Calchas, an augur from the city of Argos. Calchas was a seer. He could receive knowledge from the past, the present, and the future from the god Apollo, and he also joined the Achaean army. Tethys was naturally very fond of her son, Achilles, and attempted to make him immortal, bathing him in the river Styx, which ran to the underworld. And while she bathes him in it, while he was still an infant, this made Achilles seemingly invulnerable. Wherever he was touched, by the water of the sticks, but as she bathed him, she held him by his heel, meaning that this small part of his body had remained mortal and vulnerable to injury. As Achilles grew into adulthood, he became the greatest of all mortals. Strong, vast, agile, but also brave and perfectly confident in his abilities. He had been sent, along with Ajax, to the centaur Chiron to be raised and trained, and no other warrior in Greece would have been foolish enough to challenge him. Still, his mother knew the prophecies, especially the one that declared he would die young in battle, and news of the upcoming war spread across Greece. She was terrified for his life. She chose to hide him on the island of Skiros in the Aegean Sea, in the court of King Lycomedes when the emissaries arrived. Odysseus and Ajax she disguised him as a woman and hoping they would not find him. But they did. They blew a horn, which happened when invaders were arriving, and instead of fleeing, Achilles took up a spear and prepared for combat. He was found out, and to the despair of his mother, he decided to join the Achaean army. The Greek forces gathered. Calchas the ogre was among them. A sacrifice was made to Apollo to attract his favors, and so that the future held. After the sacrifice was made, 
A snake slithered away from Apollo's altar to a nearby tree and, finding a sparrow's nest, ate the mother sparrow and her nine chicks before turning to stone. Seeing this, Calchas interpreted it as a sign that Troy would fall, but only in the tenth year of war. The route to Troy was by sea, beyond the Aegean Sea, and to carry Greek forces an immense fleet of more than a thousand ships had been gathered. But as the fleet set sail to Anatolia, a storm scattered their ships, ending the invasion before it could even begin. It took eight long years, but the fleet was eventually gathered again. But the determination of Melanias, Agamemnon, and their allies like Odysseus paid off. Eight years later, the fleet was once again ready, and now comprised 1,200 galleys, each with dozens of warriors from all over Greece. The mainland, the Penelopes, the Aegean Islands, Crete, Ithaca, thousand men ready to attack the most formidable city in the known world. But again, as the fleet prepared to depart, the wind suddenly ceased in a way that was unnatural, even suspicious. Could it be that some of the gods were working against the Greeks? Calchas the prophet was called upon to explain what was happening, and he revealed that Artemis, the goddess of the hunt, and wild animals, daughter of Zeus and sister of Apollo, was doing this to punish Agamemnon for having slain a sacred deer, and then boasted that he was a better hunter than even Artemis herself. Artemis decided to make Agamemnon pay for his arrogance. Calchas also revealed that the only way to appease the goddess was to sacrifice his own daughter. Iphigenia. Agamemnon initially refused, but then finally relented, realizing this was the only means by which he could lead the expedition and honor his oath to his brother. So he finally performed the sacrifice. The more vengeful goddess like Hera would have certainly let the sacrifice happen, but Artemis had a good heart. So at the last moment, she took pity on the girl she took her to be a maiden in one of her temples, and she replaced her with a lamb. Iphigenia was saved. The winds returned, and finally, the Achaeans could set sail for Troy. The Iliad is famous for its telling of the Trojan War, but not how I am telling you the story at the moment. 
since the poem actually only covers a few weeks of the war, towards its end, while also alludes to several events that happened before. The Odyssey also brings more elements of the story, and the rest is a long tradition shaped by many authors over the centuries. There are often different versions of the same episode. I have chosen one for tonight, but variations exist. We are now going to see events that happened during the first nine years of the war, before the Iliad begins. So, the Greeks had gathered forces from their many kingdoms, but Troy also had allies from Anatolia, from Thrace. Many peoples had answered the call for help. This Trojan alliance was no less formidable than the Greeks. This was more than just a fight between the Greeks and Troy was a battle between the Greek world and barbarians, and the eastern peoples gathered under the Trojan banner. Two worlds were about to start fighting. From Mount Olympus, Zeus watched with satisfaction, his plan unraveling. The earth would be cleaned of its too many warriors and demigods, spawned by himself and other gods. And this was a divine conflict, too. On the Greek side, Hera and Athena, the two angry goddesses who had lost the golden apple to Aphrodite on the Trojan side. Aphrodite, Poseidon, the god of seas, and Apollo, who, as we'll see later, used their power to hinder the Greeks. The Trojans also had their heroes, the most notable of whom was Hector, son of Priam and brother of Paris. Priam was the older king of Troy and had fathered many children, including Princess Hector, Paris, Daphobus, and Helenus. Hector was a talented warrior and commanded a Trojan army, on par with Greek heroes like Ajax or Achilles. Calchas the Ogre made a prophecy about the arrival of the Achaeans. The first to walk on Trojan land would also be the first to die. Obviously, no one dared to step off their ships knowing this. Odysseus once again solved and saved the situation with one of his tricks. He threw his shield on the beach and landed on it. Another Greek, Protesilaus, seeing this and assuming Odysseus had been the first to set foot on Trojan soil, so he did too. But Odysseus had not really walked on Trojan land since he was standing on his shield, and Protesilaus soon fell victim to the prophecy, dying after engaging 
in a single combat with Hector, and he was killed by the Trojan leader. However, things went rather well for the Greeks on the first day of combat. They slayed many Trojans and were able to occupy the beach. Whereas the Trojans fled to safety of their city walls. The walls were the most formidable in the world, so high and so strong that legend attributed they were built by gods Poseidon and Apollo himself. Following the retreat of the Trojans behind their city's walls, the Greeks besieged Troy for the nine following years. The walls were so high and thick that an assault was unthinkable. The city itself was so large that it couldn't be entirely encircled, meaning that Troy could still receive supplies. Still, the Greeks sent their armies, led by heroes such as Ajax or Achilles, to raid the surrounding land of Trojan allies. Achilles raided several cities and among the loot brought back an enslaved woman of remarkable beauty. Briseis, Agamemnon also captured another seducing slave, Chryseis, but still the Trojans would not exit the safety of their city walls. The Trojans knew that time was on their side and that the Archaeans could not remain in Troy and away from their homes and kingdoms forever. The strategy began to pay off. By the end of the ninth year, thousands of warriors refused to obey their leaders and demanded to return home. It took the aura of Achilles to convince them to stay for now. But the worst was still ahead for the Achaeans, and this is where the tale of the Iliad begins, in the tenth year of the siege. The father of Chryseis, the enslaved woman captured by Agamemnon, was a priest of Apollo and came to Agamemnon to ask for the return of his daughter. Agamemnon refused and even insulted the priest, which enraged Apollo. The god Apollo then afflicted the Achaean army with a plague, forcing the leader to return Chryseis to her father. As compensation for the loss of the slave, Agamemnon took Achilles' captured enslaved woman, Briseis, himself. Achilles, insulted and enraged by Agamemnon's actions, Achilles decided he would no longer fight and withdrew from the war for now. The Trojans, seeing their enemy's morale shaken, decided it was time to bring the siege to an end. For the first time since the Greeks' initial landing, the two armies faced each other. A 
duel was agreed upon between two champions, Melanaeus of Sparta and Paris of Troy, the two men who initially fought for Helen. But Paris was no match for Melanaeus and was beaten. To save his life, the goddess Aphrodite snatched him from the field, refusing to let the man who chosen her to die. The two armies once again began to fight below the city walls. Warriors and heroes on both sides gave everything they had to destroy their enemies, inspired by the gods who supported them. Inspired by Athena, Greek god Diomedes, even goddess Aphrodite herself, thousands fell that day. But still, the battle ended without a decisive winner. In the days that followed, the Trojans exploited their psychological advantage and the absence of Achilles to drive the Greeks back to their camp. Achilles observed what was happening from afar. According to Greek tradition, warriors were paired with a companion. They were best friends and sometimes even lovers. Achilles' companion, who was also his relative, was Patroclus. And when Achilles withdrew from the war, so did Patroclus. But Patroclus wanted to fight. And seeing the progress made by the Trojans, Achilles allowed him to do so. Patroclus wearing his armor and leading Achilles' army. The next day, Patroclus bathed in glory as he led the Greeks in driving back the Trojans to the walls of their city and salvaging a desperate situation. The Greeks, thinking this man to be Achilles, were inspired, and as the Trojans re-entered their city in chaos, Patroclus, in Achilles' armor, thought to storm the city before the Trojans were able to close the doors behind them. But at this moment, fates and the will of God hit. Apollo stopped the Achaeans from entering Troy. Hector once again appeared to fight Patroclus, thinking he was Achilles and not having the strength of his companion, and couldn't be the best Trojan hero. He was defeated and killed by Hector. After the death of their leader and this counterattack, the Greeks allowed the Trojans to return to their city. Once again, the situation was at a dead end. But Achilles was maddened by the death of Patroclus. He swore to kill Hector in revenge, which meant he had to re-enter the war. And so he reconciled with Agamemnon 
and received Gracie's back from the Greek king. Having lost his armor and weapons to Patroclus in his battle with Hector, Achilles received new ones forged by Hephaestus, the god of metalworking and artisans himself. The next day, Achilles killed many on the battlefield, even nearly killing the Trojan hero Aeneas, who was saved at the last minute by Poseidon. The Trojan army once again fled to their walled city, but the goddess of Athena, protector of Achilles, was watching. She caused Hector to become disoriented and to stay outside. Now the two most formidable heroes of the war, Achilles and Hector, now faced each other. Achilles, burning with hate toward the killer of Patroclus, an epic fight followed, and each with their protector, Achilles with Athena, and Hector, Apollo, and Aphrodite. Still none could vanquish the mighty warrior Achilles individual in a duel, and that day Hector was defeated and killed. Still blinded by his hatred, Achilles dragged Hector's body behind his chariot and refused to return it to the Trojans for burial. King Priam of Troy was devastated by the loss of his favorite son and afterwards was guided by Hermes, the messenger god, to Achilles' tent where he begged for the return of Hector's body. Touched by the sorrow of a grieving father, Achilles agreed and gave back the body so a funeral could be organized for Hector. But still the war raged on. Troy continued to resist even after the loss of their leader. In yet another battle, Achilles even managed once to enter the city with a small group of Achaeans. Seeing this, the gods gathered to argue over Achilles. He had killed so many, including many of their own children. That thought his time to die had come. Mortals, even heroes, are of little importance to the gods, and the gods agreed on this, inspired by Apollo. Paris hit Achilles with a poisoned arrow in the only part of his body that could be injured, the spot his mother had not dipped in the river sticks, his heel. The hero... Achilles vacillated as poison ran through his veins, and he collapsed, dead. On this day, the prophecy announcing that he would die young and become immortal through poetry was fulfilled. Achilles was no more, but 3,000 years later, 
he still lives in memories. With Achilles dead, the Greeks had lost their best hero, and the war was still not over. And the end came with one final ruse. And after years of fighting, violence, hate, and revenge, it was not force, but a ruse that ended it. Odysseus devised a ruse, a plan, that they would build a giant wooden horse in which he and a few others would hide. The Trojans awoke to find the beach deserted. The immense fleet of Greeks gone. The Achaeans had apparently withdrawn from the war, and only the giant horse on wheels remained on the beach. Believing the war to finally be over and filled with joy, the Trojans dragged the horse into their city. Several voices warned against keeping it, advising that the horse should instead be burned. But Athena made sure they were ignored. The Trojans decided to keep the horse as a trophy and turned to a night of celebration. To them, the war was finally over and they had prevailed. Or had they? Because in the middle of the night, when the moon was full, the Achaean fleet returned, and Odysseus and his men emerged from within the horse and killed the guards and then opened the gates of Troy from the inside to the Greek army. The Greek army entered the city that night. They killed the sleeping population. The sack of Troy continued into the next day. Greeks were filled with rage after ten years of pointless fighting. They committed a massacre and even threw Hector's infant as Tyanax down from the walls of Troy to end the royal line. More innocents than before were killed, and the most powerful city of the world fell to its enemies. The story of Troy had come to an end, but history never ends. A few survivors led by the Trojan hero Aeneas, went on a journey that ended in Italy, where they settled. Their story is told in another epic poem, the Aeneid, by the Roman author Virgil, who made the story of the Trojan horse legendary, as the horse doesn't appear in the Iliad which actually ends before the fall of Troy. Greek kings returned to their lands 
on difficult journeys, especially Odysseus, whose journey home is told in Homer's Odyssey, that I will tell you another time. Through the Iliad and multiple other texts written later, the Trojan War remained continuously famous during antiquity, the Middle Ages, and to our days. In antiquity, the story was considered to be historical, but in the West, as it was considered to be part of mythology, it was increasingly seen as a myth, among others. In the 19th century, scholars considered Troy to be purely mythical, or as a story made of several different stories until the 1860s, under the ruins of a Roman city, which itself had been built on a Greek settlement. The ruins of a large city from the Bronze Age corresponded to the location and time period indicated in the Iliad were discovered. And on the site, an abundance of artifacts made of copper silver, and gold were unearthed. They have been called Priam's Treasures, after the name of the legendary king of Troy. But most of the artifacts were actually located on a part of the site that doesn't correspond to the Bronze Age city. So it's far from certain whether or not these artifacts are related to ancient Troy, but still they are well-preserved ancient and a remarkable archaeological treasure. So it appears Troy did exist in the Bronze Age. We still have no way of knowing whether the Trojan War is a myth, actually happened and was exaggerated, or was a combination of several wars. But what we do know is that a city existed there long before the dates of the supposed Trojan War. The ancient Greeks estimated the war to have taken place around 1200 BC, but the earliest excavated at the site are from 3000 BC and Archaeological studies indicate that the city was destroyed around the 12th century BC, at a time that corresponds to the mythical Trojan War story. More broadly, the dates correspond to a widespread phenomenon in the Near East called the Late Bronze Age Collapse, around the same time between 1200 and 1150 BC. Ancient Greek kingdoms, Babylonia, the Hittite Empire in Anatolia, the Egyptian Empire, they all collapsed politically and culturally at this time. Trade routes were interrupted, cities were abandoned, and the Dark Ages commenced. 
lingering for centuries in various parts of the eastern Mediterranean. We don't know the exact reason why. It could have been a temporary change in the climate, maybe caused by volcanic eruptions. It could have been an invasion or the effects of iron-based metallurgy that began to spread and maybe led to wars or maybe a series of coincidences. But it happened, and maybe the story of the Trojan War was an expression of this collapse, which shook the early Greek world and from which the Greeks needed several centuries to fully recover. As always, mythology is never entirely made up and has its roots in reality as a way to explain history, society, and the human experience. That's all I have for you tonight. I hope you enjoyed our journey to the world of mythology. And until we meet again, good night, sleep well.